0: learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Hi folks, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm host of the Transformative Principal podcast and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. And I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings folks. Of course, Jethro, we should add that you're the guy who makes this thing work, which is a really huge piece of this. I am Frederick Lane, an author, an attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information, uh, particularly for teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, today, artificial intelligence, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Hello there, Jethro. Hey, I was actually just thinking you're the one who makes this all happen. So I'm glad we both feel the same way about each other. That certainly helps. It certainly does. Makes it all very much easier today. We have the
1: distinct privilege of speaking with Ora D. Tanner, who is the Assistant Director of the Office of Undergraduate Research at the University of South Florida. Uh, She previously worked as a nuclear physicist, science educator, and more recently as a graduate researcher on NSF, National Science Foundation, funded grant projects related to digital game-based learning and assessment, and boy, do I have questions about all of that. All Aura earned her BS and MS in physics from Dillard University of New Orleans and USF, respectively, and expects to complete her doctorate in instructional technology and educational measurement in 2019. So I guess this is a slightly outdated biopic. In her free time, she studies the latest emerging technologies and explores how they can be used to empower both K-12 students. And teachers in science education. So, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Oh, that's terrific. I know that we
1: connected through some folks in the Truman Foundation, the Truman Scholars Foundation, and uh, you're at the Aspen Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there?
2: Yes. Uh, it was a fellowship I had a couple of summers ago in educational. Technology policy, and so what they do is they take experts in a technology field and they train them to do policy. And so, I was able to spend a summer out in uh, San Francisco working on um, an ed tech policy project.
1: Well, I'm sorry sure for you, but that must have been terrible. Oh, <laughs> you know, I think that it's great that you've got the educational policy experience. Um, reading through some of the stuff that you had done. I was really interested in this idea of building bonds. I came across a tweet that you had from a few months ago in which you said, technology can facilitate connections. However, helping build bonds between students, teachers, parents, and their communities is what will help us all get through these challenging times in education. And of course, we've been talking a ton about the pandemic. And its impact on education and so forth. Can you talk us through that a little bit? What were you thinking about when you were making that comment?
2: Um, It has a little bit to do with um, the current work that I'm doing. Uh, So last year I became the co-founder and chief learning officer at what's called the AI Education Project. Um, And we're um, a nonprofit that's looking to educate high school students about artificial intelligence. Um, its impacts in the future of work. And so I'm educating um, students a lot about what artificial intelligence is and is not. Uh, We look through a social, political, economical, cultural lens uh, to teach them about AI. So uh, just during the pandemic and just everything we were going through, it just seemed like every news article title said AI being used, you know, (laughs) finding out when the next Outbreak is, AI is being used for this, AI for, you know, remote learning, you know. And I'm like, uh, AI can do some things, not as much as people think, but I was really thinking about the remote learning and it really comes down to the human aspect that always gets left out. Like somehow artificial intelligence or any technology kind of trumps or is better than humans, but if you don't have connections, then it doesn't matter how much technology you have.
1: I think that's a really good point. I I think it would be useful. I've got kind of a ballpark sense of what AI might be, but I'd be interested in having you define that for us for the purposes of our conversation. I, is it just fancy algorithms or is it something qualitatively
0: different?
2: Yeah. AI as we define it in the curriculum that we have. Um, it's funny, there's no agreed upon um, universal definition. Uh, so there's literally like um, a part in our curriculum where we show like, it's just like 20 different definitions and it's different depending on who you ask. And so uh, we just say it's the broad notion that a machine has the capability of doing what we as humans would um, consider tasks with things that require intelligence. then you can get into the whole uh, conversation, what is intelligence? But uh, basically, things we humans do, uh, machines are able to do those types of things. Um, And it does it through machine learning. And that's where the statistics and the fancy math come in. But it's basically just finding patterns and trends that we humans otherwise would not be able to um, figure out.
0: In education, one of the quote unquote promises of technology has been that, you know, we can replace teachers with software programs that use AI to teach kids what they need to learn. And we essentially don't need teachers anymore. Now, I personally am of the opinion that we need teachers more than ever and that their role is much more than just dispensing information, which any computer program can do. You fill it with an encyclopedia of knowledge and it can break that up. It can teach it to students. It can test them on it. But that's not what education is really for, in my opinion. And so, how is the AI that's in educational software programs different from the AI that kids need to learn about before they go into the workforce?
2: Actually, there's really no difference. The way it's being used already in a lot of ways in the classroom now is through um, software. Uh, So, being able to. say, do attendance or help teachers with grading, Um, just automating a lot of those um, repetitive uh, rote tasks. So it does the same exact thing in the workplace. So it might be you're putting on the doors of a car or getting specific information from a customer or something. So it's the same exact thing, just in different contexts. Um, And that's one of the misconceptions about artificial intelligence that our ideas kind of come from, you know, the shows we see on television where, you know, it's walking around, it's thinking, hey, did I see someone around the corner, you know, and that's called general artificial intelligence. And that's where it's actually on the level as human beings. And it um, is aware of the context and can just make these independent decisions. But most of the AI that we see is what's called narrow artificial intelligence. And that just means it does one thing really well and really efficiently. So it can recommend videos on YouTube, or it can um, determine, you know, financial gains that will come if you invest in a certain thing. And that's all it can do. Um, It can't pivot and then start doing something else. Um, So having kids just have that conceptual understanding of what AI can and cannot do, I think is really huge. Um, And the cert sorts of tasks that ai can do um so a lot of times it's like oh it's going to just take over entire jobs but the reality is it will take over task within that job and so they need to recognize okay the parts that requires creativity uh, me being able to pivot uh, make a decision humans are really good at that um this thing over here putting in these nails in this building again and again or lifting and delivering boxes from one part of the warehouse to the other that's probably something ai is really good at
1: this is fascinating stuff where i have to tell you i grew up with a diet of science fiction which has probably colored my perception of all of this but this is something that that i've been following really pretty much since deep blue played gary kasparov you know for the global chess championship, by the way, great Twitter account. If if you haven't followed Gary Kasparov, really interesting guy. Putting that aside, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that we are seeing incursions into what I would traditionally consider to be creative work by, and again, I'm I'm a little fuzzy now on the terminology, I don't know If I should accurately describe these as software programs or some low level of AI, but for example, you know, the very concrete thing is, you know, my primary self identity is as a writer. And so I'm very sensitive to stories about computer programs, writing things. And more and more for instance, you're seeing. Um, news, news outlets, we don't have newspaper for pretty much anymore, but news outlets turning to computers to do even summaries of sports events, because there's a limited set of vocabulary. There's certain known forms, but many of the short sports articles that you read now are actually written by computers. So to me, this is, feels a little bit like the nose of the camel, right? Getting into my creative tent. And I'm worried about it. So how worried should I be?
2: I mean, I've seen some of those articles. um, And there's something called GPT-3 that, um, you know, I was writing whole entire articles. Um, I've seen where uh, AI has been used to do um, works of art, create songs, lyrics, all of those things. But to me, it's very limiting because it can't do that of its own, like build something from scratch. Like you can't just have an AI, write me an essay on, you know, World War II. Nothing's going to happen. Like I could ask you that, you know, hey, write me about all the traps about, you know, using your cell phone, you know, between you and students. Okay, you could start doing that, but um, it needs data on the front end, like literally without data, AI cannot exist, it's like it's oxygen. So to me, that's very limiting. Like um, Jethro was saying earlier, hey, I could give it all these different sources about a specific topic. But I think there's like, there's the science of writing and then there's the art of writing. So if I have, you know, 50, you know, gazillion terabytes of information about, you know, education technology. Sure, I might be able to put out something that's informative, but will it be artful? You know, can it have like a sense of humor or, you know, tongue in cheek or inferring behind the lines? Like, no, it can't. I don't think in my mind, there's nothing to be worried about.
0: Yeah, I think if you're not a very good writer... Then you should be maybe a little concerned about that, but we already know you are, Fred. So you can have self confidence, right?
1: <laughs> well, that that's incredibly gracious of you. Uh, I think, I, or I, I give you, I give you props for already being our most philosophical guest because now we're debating about the line between art and craft and all the rest of this. and 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 it's it's legitimately fascinating. I. I don't know what to say. I mean, look, Jethro is a principal, right? You face situations in the hallways that it's hard to imagine a computer slash
0: robot coping with,
1: at least at this point in time.
0: Yes. So here's the interesting part. There are many parts of my job as a principal based on the policies and rules of our school. You don't have to think about. And in fact, in, in my experience, the districts that I've worked for have been moving toward a place where they could replicate the adults in the building with computers because they don't have much decision-making authority. They don't have opportunities to make decisions. They just do what they are supposed to do. So, for example, in um, policies about um, like zero tolerance policies about weapons or, or drugs at school. You don't make a decision, you follow the policy. And so that has actually been a hindrance in our children's lives because we've become more like computers and less like adults. And so we've had these experiences where, you know, if, okay, was there fighting involved? Did a student strike another student? Yes. Therefore you can, you must suspend them. And really, that is much more like what a computer could do. So you could you could give a student witness statements to a AI program, and they could then say, yes, because of this, that kid needs to be suspended. And unfortunately, that's what our school policies have gotten to at this point. And we still need more than ever those human beings making those decisions. Well, this person actually was threatened by the other person, and so they reacted this way and we know that because of the experiences that we've had and the interactions we've had with them and we can make that decision and i just don't think that there is a way for technology to step in and do that for us in a way that is humane and has a human element to it of respecting and recognizing people's lives and abilities so uh, on that subject though there are there are things in place that that are certainly interesting as it comes to you know, especially educational software, but also other AI implementations that are that are beneficial and do take away some of those things so that we don't need to be thinking about that. How or does that work with preparing kids for the future of their work life and what that's going to look like? What skills should we be helping them develop? What processes should we be implementing to help them be as successful as possible and know what's coming down the pike?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. That's the whole piece that, um, I think everyone's kind of struggling with now. Like in AI, um, like the number one, um, issue, uh, that I think people in the field say facing AI and machine learning is the whole social impacts piece. And that's where you have, you know, these bias issues. Um, in my mind right now, um, we're trying to teach kids that, hey, there may not be recourse because authority figures, institutions are placing um, all the responsibility. Well, it was the algorithm. We used this AI system and it gave us the score or it gave us this outcome and we used it, but you're still a human being like someone, there's been two gentlemen actually who have been sent to jail because of um, decision-making um, and criminal justice software. And, you know, both times it was facial recognition, but it was totally incorrect. Um, But some of these systems, I think one of the systems had like a 63% accuracy rate. Okay, so the police officers who are using this, you know, at that particular station, one should have realized like, okay, 63% is not good, you know, accuracy rate, but they could have stepped in. Like there always needs to be a human in the loop. So What we try to do, like with our curriculum is um, just really teach the kids that AI doesn't understand context. Um, So you're going to have to be able to like show almost like prove your own case, like uh, have your own like human logic to explain when certain things don't go well. And so I think an example is like here in um, Florida where I'm based, I'm in Tampa, Florida. They have been using algorithms to predict whether a um, young person will commit a um, criminal act. It's almost like the minority report, but it's in a county that's run over for me. And so these students haven't done anything, but because of the historical data they're putting into the database and, you know, hey, they hang out with this person. Hey, they... Stole a car. Hey, whatever.
1: It's not Pinellas County. Is it by any chance?
2: (laughs) It's Pasco. Okay. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Next, next best (laughs)
2: thing.
1: (laughs) I I dealt with some folks in Pinellas County and their attitudes towards law enforcement are pretty um, intense.
2: Yeah. And so they are like basically harassing young people who haven't done anything like, Hey, we have to, we're just checking on you. And they're checking on them like all times in the morning and at night. And what have I done? Let me check your pockets. I need to come inside all because an algorithm told them like, Hey, there's this probability, you know, that this um, young person may do something. So I think they're not need to be like guardrails of policies put in place. Um, Something I believe that should happen is every young person should be able to push back on that. Like if a police officer comes to your door, could you tell me how you came to this decision? Uh, That's where you're going to do the explainable AI, you know, can you show me what were the data points that were used? Did you have my permission to use this information? You know, they should be able to push back on that and get a different outcome. It shouldn't just be like, no, you have no recourse. This is what it says. We're doing our job and that's it.
1: This is enormously challenging stuff though, Aura. I mean, because one of the, the cyber traps kind of systemically that I'm concerned about is the accumulation of data, right? Um, there's a, there's a great art form called pointillism, which, you know, basically builds up images from little tiny dots, essentially pixels and color. And when you do enough of them, you. You can see an image emerge. And unfortunately we're, we're putting so many data points out into the world that it makes it very easy and very tempting for law enforcement, big corporations and so forth to create these pointillist images of us. And they argue that the more data points they have, the more accurate the images. But that's number one, not necessarily true. And number two, it, it ignores some of the social justice pieces that are critical to a functioning society. So I guess the question then becomes, what structures do you think are in place within the AI community to try to create the guardrails you're talking about?
2: Right now there are none. <laughs> so mm-hmm. my and not- are always looking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I saw, um. Like, I think things are being introduced, and I believe the White House had put out um, like some guidelines for ethical AI. I think that's more on the side of those who are uh, building it. Um, And specifically, as far as education, I know there was um, an AI Education Act uh, that was introduced, I think just a couple of months ago, but it was about teaching students AI more on the technical side, as well as AI literacy. But as far as how these different um, you know, companies and organizations are using the data, I know there's different like data privacy groups who are trying to do things as well. But if students don't know, like, hey, when I download this TikTok app onto my phone, <laughs> you know, um, and that's one of the exercises like we have students do is just go to their terms of service. Like they're not trying to hide it from you. Like you just click on the page and then it just shows you like Not only is it you know name and you know credit card information, but what is the resolution of the screen on your phone? What other um, apps do you have downloaded on your phone? Um, What are you copying and pasting? Like, one you would have to ask, why do you need all that data (laughs) on you? That's kind of scary. But yeah, as far as um, guardrails, like we're still early on in this, and so that's something that's being developed. And even though companies and organizations say, you know, bias and social impacts is one of the top issues, they are not making any um, investments um, in finding a solution for it. And so it's like, how important is it really? Like, is it really the biggest problem, you know, facing the field if you're not going to do anything about it or make investments or have plans to do anything about it?
1: Well, yeah, this is, you know, these conversations do get frustrating, right? Because we we can clearly identify a potential problem, you know, in terms of how data is being used, um, who's making the decisions, how does somebody push back when they're confronted with law enforcement, you know, which is a fraught situation and is loaded with potential pitfalls. It's very much like climate change, right? It's this big, huge thing that we're trying to fix, but on a minute by minute basis, it's hard to see, you know, what's going wrong. I think one of the questions that we were, we were going to ask you about sort of ties into this in a slightly different way, which is that we've heard a lot about the impact of artificial intelligence and automation on employment, right? This is one of the big complaints about globalization. Um, and so forth, and that's been a very hot political item. If you're a parent and you're worried about your kids and you're worried about the world they're going to grow up in the systemic issues is one part of it. But the other piece of it is my kid's going to need a job. Are they competing with robots in Mexico and Korea? And if they are, what do they do? What's, what's the skill set kids need to bring forward? To make them competitive in a world that's going to actually have some other, even narrow intelligences to compete against.
2: Yeah, I think it should be instead of seeing human versus machine, it should be human plus machine. So if we teach students that artificial intelligence can be used to augment what they're already doing, then it becomes less scary. And then there is no competition. Like I was saying earlier, if they come to realize, okay, there are things that AI is really good at. Okay, let me let AI do those things. But there are certain things that humans are really good at. So I need to focus on developing those skills and those mindsets and that knowledge. And it turns out those things are, you know, more um, the collaboration, like AI does not know how to collaborate with humans or other AI for that matter and communication. That's also something that, you know, is hard for AI because when we speak to each other, it's in our tone or we have a look or body language. AI can't do that. And just being creative, that's a whole nother, you know, discussion how we define creativity. But there are just certain things that humans are really good at. AI is very far off from doing those things. So we need to help students focus on those and then see how they can use AI, Um, say, for instance, uh, in culinary arts, AI is being used to come up with different recipes that no one would have ever thought based on chemistry and, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it would be interesting, you know, for instance, someone who wants to be a chef, you know, to take that outputs that the AI comes up with and use that as their starting point. Like, oh, wow, I never thought about, you know grapes and nutabegas, and you know doing, you know like take that and then add the human part to go from there. Or hey, I'm thinking of this thing. You know, let's see what types of patterns you know over history I've been used to cook with these things. But I think if we teach, yeah, students to um, augment what they're already doing to get new results. Then that could be a really cool way of helping to prepare them.
0: What I love about that approach is that it's it's really taking that AI literacy to an appropriate level of of what you can actually do with it. So instead of saying, because a computer said so, then it has to be right. You're saying because a computer said so, it gives us something we may not have thought of, but doesn't mean that, you know, it's exactly the right thing that we should be doing. Um, so as a as a brief example of that, my dad lived in Brazil for a while and married a Brazilian woman. And one of the great meals from Brazil is called feijoada, which is rice and beans and sausage or pork or something. Um, And then you put bananas on top of it. And you don't think of bananas being with rice and beans as being very good, but it actually adds this great sweetness and flavor to it. And so knowing that I started adding it to other um, things like a burrito bowl or burrito and and putting bananas in there as well. And it adds this great sweet flavor to it, which is really great. Now, AI could have come up with that combination on its own that us here in North America may not have ever thought of of having as a combination. And just because the computer said we should do that doesn't mean that that's the right choice. However, if you do experiment and do try things, then you can configure some things out. So what other pieces of that AI literacy should we be paying attention to and thinking about?
2: So in addition, I guess to it just being able to find um, trends and patterns that we might not have um, thought of, just how to, of course, the efficiency um, is always a part of everything. But one of the projects we have students do is we ask them to envision how they might use AI to solve a problem in a future job or a career so actually look at existing um jobs or careers and see hey what's a pain point here that is ai is not already being used uh to do so for instance um one of the final projects we got was um one of our students came or s- came up through the um foster care system so that student had i guess negative experiences with um, in emergency situations being um matched to a family, and that student had a sibling, so it was like her um proposed solution was, Hey, when you're matching a student or a young person and their sibling with the families, we need to have data to make sure that um their temperaments are complementary, and so, oh, we don't want to put them with this parent, even though they're available or closer this one over here would be a better match so that the young person has a better experience. We had another student that um, thought about using all the data on someone who's a political candidate um, and who they're connected with to predict what the probability is that that political candidate will have chances of being a world dictator. And so that's more like a fantastical one, but Hey, well, I don't know that, that <laughs> seems surprisingly <laughs> relevant. <laughs> like, um, yeah, we're having students, you know, envision, like, I don't think anyone's using AI in that way right now, but hey, that could be a thing. Um, so if we just, um, have students look at things they're, you know, currently interacting with or for their future jobs, now that you know what AI is really good at, um, it's good at taking all this data about something, a situation, a person, making a prediction, performing a task, and then giving them the power to apply AI. So instead of you being just the consumer, now you are being a creator with AI. So I think that's an important skill.
1: Or well, it seems to me that, um, well, there's two things I want to follow. Well, three, actually, I'll, I'll tell you but a couple of quick points. And then there's an aspect of your experience that I think would be really interesting to people. But let's close out the AI section with a couple of questions because it does seem to me that your idea of collaboration is spot on, right? That that the idea of technology has always been to augment what we can do, right? There, I don't need to remember the dates of the Kennedy administration because Wikipedia is a click away. So I never have to memorize that again, which is great. You know, or whatever your example is, but then the question becomes, you know, what about what, what should we be doing as a society or as an educational community to deal with the legitimate displacement issues that will arise, right? So your example is yes, you know, machine learning or AI will can do certain things well. And, and humans don't necessarily end up having to do those. One of the classic, I think, workplace or workforce issues that's going to be problematic is truck driving, that there's, there's a window now on long haul truckers being human. Maybe it's a five year, maybe it's a 10 year window, something like that, but there is a window. So then the question becomes, you know, there's nothing that those truck drivers can do to work with computers. Once the computer starts driving, it's an either or situation. So what do we need to do to help particularly older folks deal with that? I I, this train keeps getting faster and faster. I think here's the thing we have certain sizable sectors in the American economy. Let's just stick with that, that within a foreseeable stretch of my life will become fully automated because we've got LIDAR, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got the tools to make it safer for the machine to do it. So that's number one. What do we do for those folks who can't collaborate because the machine will just Tinko?
2: Yeah. Like I'll um, use your truck example. So there's like 99% probability that Truck driving will be automated, like you said, because of um, autonomous vehicles. But just realize just because, you know, there's all these reports that come out from the World Economic Forum, the Brookings Institute, uh, the McKinsey, uh, you know, they put out these reports. Um, So, yes, millions of jobs will be displaced, um, even some of them eliminated, but millions more will new jobs will be created. And so we need to start thinking about those new jobs and even in something like um, automation of vehicles, you're still going to need someone to kind of police and act as a um, traffic controller. You know, like you're not just going to put these vehicles on the road and they're just, oh, we got it right. Like, no, AI is basically code that can learn. And so Uh, It does not know every context or situation that's going to happen. So you have to know there's going to be accidents. And actually there was one where um, I believe the woman was run over um, by one of the vehicles and actually killed, Um, which Tesla. Right. Yeah. Which leads to an interesting, you know, ethical issue, like who's responsible um, for that. But yeah, you're still going to need humans in the loop. It's not like you just, design, develop, and deploy AI, and we're done, like, oh, AI can take it from here. Like, you're still going to need, you know, like, the use of drones. We're going to need drone traffic controllers as well. You know, they're learning. And um, just like when we drive to work every day, it's not the same situation. Every single time, the same way, these cars are going to have to learn. And that's something like um, the curriculum that I've developed um, with our organization we try to introduce students to uh, what I call AI jobs. They didn't even exist, you know, three to five years ago. Um, for instance, a conversation um, designer. So since the first interaction with lots of companies is the chatbot on their websites, or tons of universities are using chatbots now to answer students, university students' questions. But they need someone to design those or uh, those conversations to make them sound more human-like, or um, personal data broker there's so much data that's needed just like you buy and sell stocks they're buying and selling people's information or an ai ethicist is becoming a growing role so um just because some jobs are going away new ones are being created
1: my takeaway from listening to your really fascinating discussion is that we need to fast forward the ai ethicist development program.
0: (laughs) Exactly. That's what I was thinking too, because if, as you're talking about all these things, how do you prioritize what in the drone traffic controller, how do you prioritize what gets priority? How do you say this one's more important than the other one? As you're creating conversations with people, how do you say this is the right way to have this conversation? Yeah, I think the AI ethicist is pretty high up on that list. And But the problem is, I don't think that that is a very high on the making money level. And so that's, it it seems to me like this is what AI is for, is for reducing inefficiencies and speeding up the the processes to, you know, continue to make money. And there's not a lot of people who are in it for non-financial reasons, because it is right now still expensive to do. How do you have that conversation so that these things can start happening because it's it's not in the business's best interest to treat people a certain way if it's not going to be beneficial financially for them. I bad question. I'm sorry. Help me out if I need it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I understand what you're saying. Um, cause it's like, what is the incentive to take on these new roles? Great. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: You're much better at this than me. Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I guess that's when. You have to teach, I guess, students to think longer term, like, hey, we need you in there now so that you can help shape and form how this technology will be used. Um, And so long term, you are helping this to, you know, be better. You're helping it to be more fair. You're helping to give more insights. So it has to almost be an altruistic type of thing. Or just um, more socially conscious, I think, is where jobs, now we're not just going to be taking jobs just because I want to make money. Like, hey, now we have to, you know, teach students to take jobs so that we really can make a better world. And I think the kids coming up, that's what they really want to do. So it actually might be appealing.
1: Oh, that's incredibly encouraging to hear, (laughs) Aura. That's the kind of thing I like. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit because, you know, I didn't want us to run out of time before asking you about this idea of gamifying uh, learning and assessment. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what that means, how, how you develop that? Um, because I have a whole series of questions on video games. So I'm curious to see what the pedagogical uh, objectives are.
2: Yes. So first, there's a difference between gamification and game based learning. And so in gamification, you're just using the components of games to engage uh, the learner with whatever the content is. So that's things like, you know, points or leaderboards or progression or things like that. Um, So you're just using those aspects to make it more fun. But when people say that, I'm like, Learning already is fun. So if you're adding these components <laughs> to make learning fun, you've already missed the point. And game-based learning, which is what like, my research was on, is more like you're actually using the game as the context for learning. And so you are pro- your um, learning progresses as the game progresses. And so there's just a lot of benefits. Um, like the research shows, it um, engages students, uh, the motivations there. There's research that shows um, students persist longer when um, they're in a game-based environment than they would in like a traditional environment. You have a uh, situated cognition, so students are able to take on a role of, say, a specific character, like, "Oh, I'm a refugee," or "I'm an engineer," and putting themselves you know in that identity, you know they're able to learn. So there's just a lot of benefits from using for using games and you know there's the curiosity, there's the challenge of it. Um so those are all things that are going to um engage students um and make them think more critically and try to figure things out and which in some instances, I'll just say some instances are not in traditional classrooms. <laughs> I won't say that's not there at all. Cause that's actually
0: and also the uh the other piece about games is that it's safe to fail in them. And- yes. And that that makes it very easy to try new things and take different strategies and different approaches because the penalty for failure is not as large as the penalty is for failure in class. If you are in front of your peers and you, you know, fail at something, then that's a much bigger risk than failing in a video game, which makes it seem like it's not a big deal.
2: Yeah, but it has to be the right balance because that happens to like, especially in just like commercial video games, if it's too easy, then kids are just like, I don't want to play this. Like, so that challenge piece <laughs> has to be there. But, um, I believe the brain was built for challenges. Like you want to figure things out. You want to solve it. and remember one of the games that it was like Flappy Bird that came out like a long time ago, it was like almost impossible. You couldn't even get like three seconds, but
1: I hate that game. <laughs> my, my equivalent of that, um, cause my gaming way predates the two of you, was like Frogger, trying to get the frog across the highway. (laughs) I mean, just miserable. And of course, there's no pedagogical benefit to any of that, so, you know, kind of pointless. But, Ora, let me ask you this. Do do you find that there are certain um, subjects that work better for this type of game theory-based learning?
2: Yeah, so the research is um, math is like one of the number one areas um, and then reading, um, unfortunately um, you would think science. Well, now science I think is actually one of them. They've made some pretty um, immersive experiences, but the interesting thing that happens is um, although games have these affordances for, you know, that could really, you know, be an immersive experience when it comes to assessing students um, like games for learning, it still tends to be at the knowledge level. So it's like, oh, we did this cool, you know, inquiry activity thing inside the game. But then when it comes to the assessment piece, um, it's still like, oh, what does such and such mean? You know, it's like, it doesn't, you know, kind of leverage all that games uh, can do. But I know um, I had a fellowship at Educational Testing Service. And so they are doing some really interesting things with, specifically um, science, and so they're um, collecting process data. So instead of just looking at the endpoint of what a student did, like did they get the answer right or wrong, they're looking all along the way, like what led them to this final answer because they could have been correct all the way up until the very last step. Um, So you can learn a lot more about the process that a student took to arrive at their final thinking.
0: Well, and, and that gets into what teachers bring to the table is recognizing that process. And if a teacher can use the data from the simulation or game or whatever it is to analyze the student's process or have it analyzed and, and then the teacher can look at it and make recommendations, that seems really powerful to me, where it doesn't seem as powerful as when the computer just makes all those decisions for you, you know, and the teacher is taken out of it completely because... They bring something to that of, you know, suggesting the next stage of challenge or the further reading and information they can get because of the failures that they made. There may be some places where AI can identify that, but really, you know, a a teacher who's been teaching for 20 years and knows where kids make mistakes and sees those mistakes and identifies those mistakes and waits for them to make them so that she can teach them at that point. Rather than trying to prevent them because she tries to prevent them, then the kids aren't, still aren't going to learn because they have to go through that process themselves to fail and learn. Again, I, I go on for hours about this, but, but I'll just stop there. Well,
1: I actually thought we were segueing into a Brazilian cooking show. So that I, knew that. Yeah. I got more where that came from. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, that'll be fun. That's really cool stuff. It does seem to me, Ora, and, and this may be the kind of appropriate kind of wrap up on this is that, that there, there clearly seems to be a potential for an overlap of artificial intelligence and game-based instruction, you know, in terms of the identification of processes, maybe adapting the games as students go through. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways I would imagine that could play out, but is that is that something you've looked at? Is that, a, is that an issue that's arisen for you yet?
2: I personally haven't gotten into it, but I know there are um, lots of groups who are making um, AI based. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are groups making AI based um, games for education, um, and a lot of the current um, commercial games, commercial off the shelf games, already use um, AI. So you have more of these, you know, open ended exploratory games where you're just you know going seeing what happens what's this over here Um, and there's actually um, a game called AI Dungeon I think they're on part two right now but it's um, totally it's a text-based text-generated AI game it's awesome it's like basically um, you type in what you do and because the ai has this like millions of bun- millions of responses from others it tells you the next thing that happens in the game so i might say oh i ran and jumped off the top of the cliff and then the ai will say what's next oh but a giant hawk swoops and catches you before you hit the ground well i said the hawk on fire <laughs> yeah i said the hawk on fire and it crashes into the ocean and the ai would you know Oh, an octopus comes and pushes, you know, so it's just like this crazy, this fantabulous game.
1: uh, This is fabulous. I mean, I, when I was in college, we had the first of the text-based games like adventure, you know, where you, you know, you were standing in a forest was the opening line of this text-based game and your responses had to be so precise because there was a limited vocabulary. There was, there was no variation to whatsoever. And to think of now there being an artificial intelligence version, basically of dungeons
0: dragons is mind-blowing. I just downloaded it and I think my night is shot. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Boy, that was fast. (laughs) And
0: the pitfalls of multitasking that is for sure. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's brutal. Well, you know, um, Bora,
1: is there anything that you want to kind of leave us with in terms of, you know, is, are you optimistic about how things are going to unfold for our upcoming generations or do you think there are legitimate things to worry about?
2: I am an eternal optimist. So I just think, um, as we expose, you know, more and more students, um, especially those that normally don't get the opportunity to um, access, you know, AI education or just technology education broadly, that it will hopefully spark them. And they'll want to um, either become creators of this technology or see the issues and challenges and problems and want to be a part of solving those issues. So I just think we need to give students opportunities um, to be a part and have a voice in the, um, design development and deployment now, while they're students, like they don't have to wait till they're adults. And so if we do that, I think we do have a bright future.
1: Oh, that's terrific. I'm glad to hear that frankly, cause I have, uh, four boys, 23 to 28, and I'd like to think that the outlook is good for them. Aura, this has been really fascinating. Thanks for sharing your work with us and helping us to understand where some of this stuff is going.
2: Thank you so much. This was a blast. Thank you for Uh, having me on.
1: Total pleasure. Likewise for us. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the pod, the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have topic suggestions or questions. If you'd like to follow us I'm on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones. Fred is at Cybertraps. And Aura is at the AI educator. So thank you so much for being here. And if you're still listening, you probably enjoyed the show. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating interview in your favorite podcast listening service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually.